Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And um, as always, once a month, uh, we do these docket episodes with Emily Jashinsky, um, over culture editor over at The Federalist. She's a fellow with us at Independent Women's Forum, a senior fellow uh, for somebody so young. Um, and, and she is also, she has a uh, segment over with Ryan Grimm at Breaking Points. Um, they call it Counterpoints now. So she's on there every Friday uh, doing the independent media thing. And of course, she is teaching intrepid young journalists over at Young America's Foundation. So she has many hats. Um, and I just want to start this episode with a, a quick apology to to the listeners. Um, I was actually on vacation last week. That's why there was no episode last week. Um, but uh, we are back now and we're going to do, uh, I guess, we have to do a midterms episode since this will really be uh, the last time Emily and I speak before the midterms on this show. Um, and, and Emily really has a better handle on this, I think, than I do um, really f- covering the the horse race. Um, so, I mean, it seems like just from the outsider perspective, polls have definitely narrowed. Republican red wave rhetoric seems to be roaring back. Um, Republicans seem pretty confident, but um, you know, what, what do you think is, is likely to happen? I know that, predictions are always difficult. But, um, you know, where do you think there might be some interesting upsets if they happen? Um, and, and generally, what, what, is, what is your outlook on the midterms coming in, um, coming into the, this uh, midterm season in just a couple weeks here? Yeah, it's, uh, I think, a really important lens to keep uh, fixed onto your, your vision of, the, belt, of the, the horse race conversation right now is that polling isn't good and, and pollsters are actually still um, at this very moment uh, talking to the media about how they don't you know, really think that they've calibrated, they've recalibrated um, in a way that allows them to have a, a good and, and confident gauge of, uh, or, or confidently gauge what public opinion is is in some of these different races and as a whole. Uh, and that is obviously a huge problem. So a good way to pay attention to that is is movement in the same polls. So the same poll from you know April to May to June, July, August, September. Like that's a good way to look at some of that stuff. And most of the motion we've seen in those polls is uh, towards Republicans since Labor Day. And what happens after Labor Day um, is that all of the money starts going into those races. And as the money starts pouring into those races, they kind of clinch on to what their final message is going to be. We see the we see the message, the sort of red versus blue uh, congeal. And as gas prices are going back up, as inflation continues to get worse for average Americans, um, that's sort of, I think, interestingly, combining with the, uh, the, the trap that Democrats are in, where they, they can't not talk about certain things. They can't not talk about trans rights. Uh, they can't not talk about um, woke, generally sort of woke content. And when you combine that with a bad economy, um, it's a toxic, toxic combination for Democrats. So I think we have seen movement. And if I if I had to guess right now, I would say it's a it's a pretty uh, solid win for Republicans in the House. Uh, I don't know that they'll win the Senate. I think it'll be really close. I think we're looking at a, a very, very closely divided Senate either way, which we have now. So I'm not sure there'll be much change there. Um, but I think Republicans will take the House by a comfortable margin. Um, but it, again, it's just we are we are up a creek without a paddle in terms of polling. Um, we, we really and polling determines where money goes. Polling determines where attention goes. Polling determines where media goes. And then media in and of itself um, can really change these races too so we're in an odd i think a very odd situation especially in dc where people rely heavily on those polls to figure out what on earth they do with all of these millions and millions of dollars um but but i would expect it's a a pretty it's not going to be pretty surprising from the perspective that republicans will have a comfortable win in the house um yeah speaking of things that are sort of floating around dc um you know, I think a large part of the conversation now is on priorities and whether the parties are running or talking about the issues that are aligning with voters' priorities. Um, and, and that really seems to be um, just a general across-the-board problem, honestly. Um, I think in this cycle, Republicans are focusing on inflation and economic woes, which certainly aligns at least if we trust polls at all, um, with what voters are thinking. Although uh, one thing that I keep seeing in the top three is immigration, and somehow we never talk about the the fact that immigration is still a top priority. It's sometimes one, two, three, but in almost all of these priority polls, like what issues matter to voters, um, you you end up having immigration as this third big issue that 
somehow never makes it into any of the talk shows or any of the discussion. Um, but there's a real disjoint between um, oftentimes between both parties, right. And the, and the priorities of, of voters. Um, but there's, there's a sort of conventional wisdom in DC developing, which may or may not be right that um, Democrats may have overplayed their messaging on abortion. Um, even though it does motivate their voters, uh, it doesn't allow them to talk about some of these economic concerns. That, that doesn't kind of make basic sense to me. I think they can't talk about those economic concerns because they don't have an answer to it. And it's not necessarily because uh, abortion is taking up their, their sort of airtime or whatever, but, but maybe I'm wrong, Emily, what do you think? No, I, I actually was talking about that the other day. I think it's completely true that Democrats don't really have a lot to talk about when it comes to inflation in the economy because uh, of what the Biden administration has done and what many members of the House and the Senate have voted for um, or governors that have supported it. So I think it's it, that's absolutely what it is. Um, and, you know, from the, the far left perspective, they're like, well, why aren't Republican or why aren't uh, Democrats talking about corporate greed and, and, you know, corporations increasing their prices just because of inflation as opposed to you know actually doing it because of inflation because they had to they, they can't afford to do anything else um and it's like well, because democrats are now the party of the chamber of commerce right like they're the ones that are in a, a comfortable relationship with the chamber of commerce they're the ones that control the fed they're the ones um that are passing these these sweeping pieces of legislation after there was a ton of spending in the the latter half of the trump administration because of the pandemic so uh, they don't really have a leg to stand on um and it makes it hard for them to talk about that. Midterms, though, are also about turnout. And um, that means you energize the base. So every person who is likely to vote Democrat, you need to get them out there voting for your Democratic candidates. So it does make sense uh, to an extent that you would be running heavily on the historic decision to overturn Roe. Uh, so it, it actually, like, there's there's some logic behind it if it's targeted right. What we can step back and sort of take a look at from our, our vantage point here in October is uh, they, they focused more on abortion than any other issue uh, by some metrics um, when you're looking at ad spending. I think it was especially on Facebook, but uh, over a certain period of time, they were they were running more on abortion than anything else. So if that's not targeted towards turnout, then yeah, you're, you're wildly overplaying your hand because also, um, and, and as this was something that you've, uh, d- like, I, I would sort of be curious to see what you think. I think, I think Democrats don't, aren't prepared for the new kind of Republican Party and whether or not you agree the Republican Party has changed in terms of its policies, um, at least in terms of the way that Republicans talk to reporters, it's changed. And I don't think Democrats expected Republicans to so easily and willingly flip the script in states like Arizona um, with Carrie Lake and Blake Masters or other states where it becomes, okay, well, you tell me, John Fetterman, for example, in Pennsylvania, you tell me what restrictions John Fetterman supports on abortion. Uh, and, and I do not think that the, that Democrats were prepared for Republicans to flip the script in that way. And I do not think Democrats understand how um, just offensive it is to voters when you can't say, yeah, I support restrictions uh, at nine months, um, something like that. So I, I think that also sort of neutralized a lot of their abortion push. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly on the issue of abortion, just the American people are in neither camp, really. Um right. It's it polling is pretty consistent on that question, like long term polls, pew, pew polls. Um, you know, the majority of Americans are in favor of legalized abortion um, through the first trimester and and for heavy restrictions after that, which, I mean, accords with the rest of the Western world. Most European countries have laws somewhere um, in, in that range. Uh, neither one of the parties is going to run on that platform. But it's kind of I, I think it is just open as to who will seize the moderate ground. Um, Democrats seem completely unable to, uh, Republicans probably won't too, because this is a, this is a moral issue that people have really strong feelings about. They will anger their own base, um, by, for example, embracing a, a 15 week ban, but no further. So I, I do think that actually, um, on the abortion question, the only thing I think is really, really interesting about it is that it is exercising those like capital P political muscles that have atrophied over time, right? We're talking about, an actual strong moral issue with real legislative consequences, real life consequences. We really haven't had um, a non-economic issue like that live in the public square um, the way this is uh, for for a very long time uh, because of the way that our system takes so many of those 
political questions out of politics, either gives them to the judiciary or gives them to the administrative state, right? Um, so I think regardless of where you fall on abortion, it's a good thing that we are actually having this aggressive debate over it. Um, I think it's kind of a, um, it's a good experiment for um, all the other debates that we're going to have to have over central moral questions. And, and the, you know, I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that we have to like cash this out in the public square. I think it's healthy for the body politic. Um, but there, there's some other culture war issues that Democrats don't seem to be able to let go of. Um, and, it does speak to sort of this mismatch in priorities, right? Um, we had the president doing an interview with, I think his name is Dylan. Um, I'm not going to call him her. Uh, with this this transgender um, guy, male to female, um, who asked the president about uh, minor transition. Uh, and the president basically said it's a moral issue that we protect transition for kids, right? Um and, and then the other subject they don't seem to be able to get away from, even though it's nowhere near like high on voters' priorities list, is climate change. Um, particularly now with rising gas prices, you know, this is you know, <laughs> putting additional restrictions on energy to make it more expensive right now um, is, is not a politically viable issue. But it's also something that the Democratic base really wants to hear their candidates say. Um, and so those two issues seem to me uh, to be they're just millstones around democratic candidates neck. The more they're talking about those issues, I feel like the more in the best case, they're merely out of touch with what the average voter, even independent voters thinks is important um, this cycle. And in the worst case, they're actively turning people away because as we've said so many times here, a lot of these cultural issues are actually like 75, 25 or 80, 20. Um, there, there aren't a lot of even Democrats who support minor transition um, to support, you know, hysterectomies for minors or or mastectomies for minors um, who are quote unquote changing sex. Um, this is this is rightly uh, an issue where the American people wholly reject, um, except for a very small percentage on the left. So, I I, I think Democrats really are kind of. The, the dynamics within the party, and I think this goes very much to what you said about the Chamber of Commerce, the dynamics in the party um, are preventing them from being able to seize on even traditional democratic issues. Like they could be railing against austerity, right, um, with the Fed hiking rates, or they could be railing against um, potentially plunging the U.S. into a recession. They could, there's a traditional economic leftist case to be made there, but they're not making it because they're talking about trans kids. Well, and they're trying. I mean, they I think they know that they're in some measure of trouble because of all of that. Um, even the belt, it's, it's sort of like a case where the beltway conventional wisdom on the left is probably correct that, um, you know, what, what James Carville has been saying for years about how you're, you're not communicating with voters, et cetera, et cetera. But they're in a position where uh, they have created a, a dichotomy where if you do not fully support um, their conception of trans rights, uh, so-called trans rights, if you are not fully on board with that, it's not that you just disagree, you're from a purple district, you're a moderate, it's that you are a bigot. It is you are a bigot. If you disagree on abortion, if you think there should be restrictions on abortion, if you're a consultant telling a candidate uh, to talk about where there should be restrictions on abortion. It's not just that your candidate needs to win and they're moderate and they're going to say something in public that might not be what they actually believe. It's that you're creating violence towards women um, and, and that you, women will die because of what you say. Um, and, and they've locked themselves into these prisons uh, where they can't take uh, positions that, first of all, are shared by most of their voters that are common sense, that they probably privately share in some cases, in other cases not, but that they privately may share um and that just frankly from a naked sort of political perspective would help them win the election <laughs> um they can't take those positions because it's the progressive or bigot binary if you are not fully on board um with every sort of with every sort of tenet of this dogma then you fall into the bigot category and the risk of falling into the bigot category from their perspective is uh outweigh outweighs the reward of um being able to just sort of level with voters and and have maybe a more politically palatable more reasonable position either way um and, and you know it's not to say that
say that Republican voters don't have a similar thing with like the election right now, uh, because that's certainly happening uh, with Re- Republican candidates. But uh, Dems have this re- really broad slate of issues, um, cultural issues that they just cannot compete on anymore because they've locked themselves into these positions. Yeah, I, I was thinking about what you said about essentially the it's it, the way that all of this becomes zero sum. You're always a bigot um, for disagreeing on any of these cultural issues. And that's kind of the, the traditional analysis I would say is that, you know, Democrats are becoming, or or especially the left is becoming um, more intolerant, right. Of, of dissension. Um, But there's a deeper critique there, which is, I I think we have to consider from the the sort of post-liberal right and left, which is that this, this idea of rights are the ever expanding, um, conception of rights that essentially eats democracy, right? Um, that that more and more things become set aside uh, out of the sphere of democracy because they're considered rights and that there's mm-hmm. always going to be a temptation to clothe whatever, if you're just, if you have the two political parties and the normal political sort of rough and tumble, there's always going to be this temptation, um, both rhetorically and substantively, to set aside whatever your pet issues are into that category where it's just over, right? There's no more debate. Um, legislatively, that's putting things into the Civil Rights Act, which, you know, Democrats not only, um, they, they attempted to put that in legislatively that for, to, to put in sexual orientation and gender identity um, into the Civil Rights Act. They failed um, to do that multiple times. Uh, Biden has backdoored it through Title IX regs, um, which we've talked about many times here. Um, but that's clearly the goal, right, is to set aside these debates and say this is, this is no longer subject to democracy. Um, what is interesting, again, about the abortion issue is that it's the only, only example recently where it's the reverse, right, where an issue got put back on the plate for democracy. Um, but but there is this real critique here that like there's always going to be um, a political incentive to characterize your uh, sort of cultural mission or your your social agenda uh, as clothed in rights, right? Something far beyond what the founders ever would have considered uh, natural rights or what certainly what they enshrined in the Bill of Rights. Um, and, and look, Republicans, frankly, you know, do that too, right? Um, there, there is this idea of, of, of economic rights, or by the way, even something like as, as fundamental, uh, I think, as natural, right, as parents uh, control over their children's upbringing. Uh, that's not really, I mean, there's a good argument that that's not really a constitutional right. It might be a pre-constitutional right, um, which is why, by the way, there's actually a movement afoot to, to try to introduce an amendment to the U.S. Constitution uh, to recognize formally parental rights. But um in any case, it seems like there is this larger problem here where it's just too easy for um, particularly Democrats, but even Republicans to take whatever cultural issue or battle they're fighting at the, at, at the time and jam it into either the civil rights framework um, or the rights framework more, more broadly. And then it becomes untouchable, both sort of linguistically, culturally for us, because we are so dedicated to this liberal, small L liberal idea of rights in this country. Um and also, like legislatively, like it's it's very very difficult to undo um, once something is, for example, in the Civil Rights Act. I mean, it's one notch above below constitutionalism in terms of our system. And, and what's interesting about the Civil Rights Act in the, that context is, uh, it created the sort of administrative bureaucracy when it comes to these questions about, uh, you know, it, it really laid the groundwork for a lot of what was to come um, and enabled a lot of what was to come in that. But it was in and of itself hashed out democratically. That that one went through the system. It's the ones after it uh, that have been sort of enabled by the system that's set up. Um, and so the left, of course, would say, well, we sort of democratically decided, decided the Civil Rights Act, thus Title IX, and any administrative manipulations of, of Title IX are, are valid. Valid, um, because it was enabled by this democratic process, the product of a democratic process that, of course, were decades and decades removed from and probably never would have foreseen um, where the cultural sort of question of sex would go in such a short period of time. Um, and it remind that that actually reminds me of, of, again, on this deeper issue 
thinking of the protests that have roiled Dearborn, Michigan, uh, where the Muslim community and the Christian community have come together to protest uh, these these books in the high school library. So available to kids 14, maybe even younger than 14 if they're uh, like if, if they're early. Um, and I took a look at one of the books and I've, I knew that that book was the subject of other protests. It's called This Book is Gay. Um, but oh, my goodness, the stuff in that book, it is just like the the way that it talks about sex um in, in such a, a casual flippant um and graphic with ca- with descriptions on that level is like unreal um and what's interesting about that is it shows that we can no longer even do these sort of like basic functions of a democratic republican society like libraries um if we, if we think about the ways that uh you know americans have historically treated the the concept of community um and you know, local government libraries uh, the fact that we can no longer even like have a consensus position on whether it is either essential or extremely inappropriate to have a book like that in the library where you, where you have you know the American Federation for Teachers protest supporting the people who want that book in the libraries the AFT supporting the book in the libraries and then care on the other side of it supporting the Muslim protesters um, it's a just a bizarre sort of state of affairs but I think at the end of the day the fact that that's even a bitter battle and not just sort of a <clears throat> not just sort of a you know this is this is done um, that tells you everything you need to know about our ability, inability to like, really function and to me it's a strange kind of dichotomy to go out into society and I mean, I live in a big city that feels dystopian post-COVID, uh, but uh, you know, you go out into society and it is literally functioning, right? You know, like like the we can still gas up our cars for the most part. Uh, we can still, you know, go to work, um, protect our families, and you know, there are caveats to that, obviously, depending on where you live and and what your community is like. But yes, we are functioning, but we're not functioning at all if we can't decide whether a book that that teaches kids in very graphic terms how to you know, perform oral sex and, and get on sex apps um, is appropriate. So it, it's strange because in some ways, like, yes, the world is still turning. In other ways, um, everything is ground to a standstill. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're really saying is we don't have a substantive agreement about what the good society looks like anymore or what the good life looks like. And I, I think... Um, Yes, we are more we are wealthier than every other country. Um, we can kind of go on autopilot for quite some time um, in terms of of the level of collapse. Although I would I would argue that you know I never thought like we talked about before I never thought Americans would middle class Americans would uh, accept um, the kind of shortages that are ongoing um, in in grocery stores. For example, there's still a formula shortage going on. Um, it's just kind of dropped out of the headlines, but. Uh, people just accept it now. You have to go around to different stores to try to find formula. You have to stockpile it. Um, these are things that Americans, I don't think, would have ever seen themselves accepting in 2019. So the, even though that kind of normalcy can shift very, very fast. Um, but I mean, I think what you're observing there is more just, uh, you know, people people are adaptable. People people do adapt and, and renorm to baseline um, even when their lives become worse. It's, it's a transition uh, that that often you know engenders the rage or the reaction before people just become used to something. Um, but but what I really think you're t- talking to talking or speaking to there is uh, like that that content contentless neutrality can only take us so far, right? Um, liberalism in that sense, and I am a liberal. Um, I am like a small L liberal. I, I still think that this is has produced. Um, a great human flourishing that is uncomparable in, in human history. Um, but I think we are pushing the limits of it today in terms of this sort of content, less neutrality, right? There, people are finding that it's very difficult to come up with an argument as to why, you know, this book um, with graphic descriptions and in fact, like sort of instructions on mm-hmm. how to go out and have, um, you know, various kinds of sex as a, a young teenager Um people are finding it really difficult to describe why that's bad, right? They have this very strong basic instinct to say that it's bad, but we've lost any kind of um, normative assertion 
about the good and and correspondingly the bad that they don't have the language to talk about it because all we have is this language of rights of neutrality um and and i I do think that's why that sarab um, akhmari david french debate exploded the way that it did on the right because i think there is something real there and and actually I, i you know i think a lot of us didn't find ourselves represented fully by either side of that debate but leave that aside but um you know, I think that that is like an important underlying uh, crippling force in in America. We are a house divided now. Um, yeah. And it's I, I, I'm running out of like good resolutions or to hope for for that kind of underlying division. It really does seem like we are two different nations, but I'm not I'm not at all an accelerationist. Um, because of the things you just pointed to, Emily, I still think it's 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 a wonderful and important and rare thing uh, in human history that we don't have many people in this country worried about their next meal. Um, we don't have many, despite all those studies that say one in five Americans is quote unquote food insecure or whatever. Most of the people answering those surveys are probably on diets. Um, <laughs> no, they, they define food insecurity like ridiculously broadly. Like, have you ever thought that... You might have difficult, you know, we, we don't have large, widespread starvation in America. You know, obviously we still have access at our fingertips to an enormous amount of information. Um, there are ways to circumvent the kind of censorship that's increasingly becoming uh, becoming the norm here. There are still, this still isn't, you know, it, we don't have good looks. So all of that I think is worth, you know, I, I'm not an accelerationist. I don't think, um, I don't think that's worth nothing, but, but it, it does, uh, does beg the question, you know, how long can a society divided on things that are this fundamental? And it sounds silly, like, oh, this book in the library, right? But um, you're right. Even 10, 15 years ago, this would be a universally obvious, no one would even feel the need to explain it. No, this is inappropriate for kids, right? And here we're finding the, that we don't have the language to say something that simple that's in common in this country. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's because um, the American Federation for Teachers is uh, infiltrated by people who totally have bought into this, like young people have totally bought, not young, totally now, but like millennials who have completely bought into this uh, ideology. And everyone else is just too afraid to go against them because that would make them bigoted. That would make them anti-gay. That would mean that they are putting at risk the gay teenagers who need that book in order to uh, you know, have healthy lives life, um, which is actually the argument being made. So it, it's all downstream of the, the one really, really, really big question of truth. And we talk about this a lot. It's the, it is the most obvious uh, sort of root cause for all of this. Like if you can't agree on uh, objective truth anymore, then you can't uh, build consensus norms um, and you surely can't build healthy norms. Uh, because if we can't agree that something is fundamentally right and something is fundamentally wrong, um, and we can't have sort of consensus positions on what is fundamentally and right and what is fundamentally wrong based on um, objectivity, based on objective observations of the world around us, uh, then yes, slowly the the threads are going to start to unravel. And I think that's what you see. I mean, a, again, a great example, that high school library still standing, still has plenty of books kids can check them out uh, the the school still functioning uh, but it, you, we really see there like a massive crack in the foundation and it feels like a matter of time before the whole project um, becomes impossible and something as luxurious historically as a library let alone a public library um, becomes really uh, almost impossible and we don't know how long that takes but we do know that uh, this is like clearly 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 one of those those big threads that gets pulled out and the whole fabric um, starts coming apart. So yeah, there, there's a question of how long this can be sustained, and, and does there come a time when you know the the scarcity is is hardly a problem in American society? Obviously, like most of it, we're one of the only places historically where your poorest have been uh, struggling the most with obesity, um, and you know that's because obviously really bad food is really cheap. Um, but it's kind of the opposite problem. We we have uh, not so much a problem with starvation as we have a problem um, of you know 
gluttony um but the 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 gluttony is people are profiting off of it and, and it's hurting um others who who don't have the means to do the Gwyneth Paltrow diet um or the the diet of Chris Cuomo's wife I don't know if people remember that she had like yeah I totally of, remember that yeah a wannabe goop blog um and then they they had a great COVID diet that, oh my gosh anyway uh, it was like but, I eat three limes and then <laughs> I <laughs> It was wild. It was like telling people to get takeout from this one place in Southampton uh, to cure their, not to cure, but to like nurse their COVID. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so it, it's, when does it become that they are prioritizing, that the sort of elite is prioritizing, um, let's see, what's a good example? This, this like super long-term COVID thing over feeding people, not COVID, a super long-term climate thing over feeding people right now. Um, this, this trans priority over uh, people being able to fill up their cars and go to work. Uh, you know, when do we actually get to that point? Um, and will we have a, a, an elite that is so hardened and calcified uh, that they are not responsive to the public? And, and then you get revolts, you get, um, you know, total subservience, you, you have a total breaking. And yeah, those essentials uh, become you know, the, the society can no longer deliver on those essentials. So I, we're not there. Clearly we're not there. Um, but it does feel like we keep having cracks in the foundation and, and giant threads being pulled out uh, to the point where we're unraveling uh, at, a, at a pretty frightening clip. Yeah, this is really what you pointed to in your speech in NatCon that we, we talked about last time, which, um, you know, that so many of these issues are not making it into our politics at all. Um, it's like kind of a similar issue as we're talking about with the, the midterm polling, right? One is about what's the most pressing political issues. And you see over and over again, economy, inflation, and immigration consistently. Um, so those are kind of the shorter, I would say, shorter term priorities for a midterm, which are, which are appropriate. But a lot of these issues aren't even, nobody's even asking people if they think despair is a top priority, right? Um, because the priorities of the elite of both parties are so wholly different. Um, and they are separated from a large part of this, although I don't think they can fully separate from some of these questions. Um, but, but even something like, you know, a lot of my family members have, you know, const consequences of eating a terrible diet. That's something that's not at all uh, a priority for elites because it's frankly not a problem for elites, right? If you, if you walk around, Manhattan or you walk around actually I think Colorado um like places like Aspen are actually the, the slimmest parts of America right um it's it's simply not a problem that affects the elites on any level and in fact as you pointed out you know the elites are totally happy to to run with the body positivity sort of message oh you're fine the way you are um but they're they're not really paying any of the consequences of of eating this kind of diet um, I'm actually, as an aside, I'm becoming more more conspiratorial about this because uh, I was talking to Spencer Clavin, who's been a guest on this show, and he's been um, in Europe, lucky enough to be in Europe twice in like six weeks for a few weeks at a time. Um, and he's like a super health nut. Like, you know, he's he's always lifting heavy stones and, and like building up his body and everything. Um, and he found that even though he was eating whatever he wanted in Europe, he like didn't gain any weight even though he watches really really strictly to stay the way he is at home yep. um and i've had the same experience um and people always say it's because you're walking but i literally have the step count to prove that it's not true because mm. i walk that much in new york uh but if i go to europe for two weeks i lose weight even though i'm sitting down to lavish meals all the time um so i am becoming more and more conspiratorial that what's actually in the food um in America versus other countries, even first world countries is substantially different, but that's, let's leave that like sort of <laughs> debate aside. Well, no, uh, but the point is we don't talk about it and there's no conversation about it in Washington, DC. Like there's literally nothing, even though if you look at what is killing Americans prematurely, what is killing Americans in general, um, are all problems stemming from 
poor health and bad diets and what we are eating. Um, and it's, it's insane how little we talk about it because for, for what a big issue it is, right? Like what is going on with mental health? They're hugely terrifying numbers about mental health. And of course, as, have you, as you've talked about before, and as we, we throw SSRIs at the problem um, and, you know, we, could, we don't need to get into that because we've talked about it before, but, um, you, you know, we, we have all of these Band-Aids, but we have zero conversation. Um, we, we pass the farm bill. We rubber stamp it constantly. Um, and there's no conversation whatsoever from the revolving door folks over at the FDA um, at all about the fact that uh, heart disease, cholesterol, all of these different obesity, um, you know, all of these different issues that are obviously downstream of what we're eating are making us miserable and killing us early. Nothing. I mean, it's just like, and and there's a prime, there was a prime opportunity to talk about that with COVID, right? The one thing that did not get discussed um, with Mm -hmm. the fact that America's numbers on COVID are worse. It was all about the politics of it. Oh, Florida's conducting, what was it? Georgia and Florida conducting experiments in human sacrifice by keeping the schools open, which in retrospect seems to be the wholly right decision. Um, but we had all of this sort of sound and fury over our COVID policies. But, um, you know, so there is a very good argument to be made that the reason that America's COVID numbers are you know, worse than some other countries is simply the underlying health of our population. Um, and that's also always been the defense of America's uh, healthcare system, that we have the, the best healthcare system in the world. If you have cancer or you have a heart attack, um, you don't want to be anywhere but the American system, which is why billionaires from other countries fly into our system um, to get treatment for those kinds of things. We have the best treatment rates, but we have lower um, overall life expectancy. Well, that's not because of our healthcare system. It's because of our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, yeah, but I guess to return to the midterms briefly until we go back, (laughs) I have have an actual segue, (laughs) um, which is legitimate one, which is let's say that Republicans, there is this real red wave. We don't know uh, because, as you said, the polls are unreliable. But as as you also said, within the same polls, things are trending towards the Republican side. Um, they at least have a solid chance of retaking the House. They may retake the Senate, right, um, by by a, a, a senator or two. Um, they may not. But let's say it all comes up aces for them. And by the way, uh, all the candidates who are told suck, right, by the media, in the last couple of weeks, they've all come up great, right? Uh, Carrie Lake is out there, um, you know, doing battle with the media over the phrase election denier, right? And, and coming up with a stack of papers of examples of Democrats um, questioning election results back to the media. Uh, we have Herschel Walker and his tete-a-tete uh, over abortion, you know, very deftly handled. We were told this guy can't debate. Oh my God, like he's the worst candidate, Blake Masters, is very much in the race. We're told, oh, Blake Masters is terrible. That one I really never understood because he always struck me as very, um, like, very eloquent, serious, actually, like, a real sort of um, thoughtful realignment candidate in a way that sometimes I, I fear other folks can get a little bit um, kind of, like, like almost just, like, sort of silly uh, in, in some of, of – um, Anyway, I'm not going to name names on this, but uh, (laughs) Blake Masters always seemed to me to be very serious, and I was at a loss as to why people thought he was a bad candidate. But um, in any case, all of these candidates seem to have performed actually quite well in in recent weeks. Um, They're all in it uh, to win their races. We'll see what happens in November. But let's say all the Republicans have a great great night. Um, Are they going to address any of this, right? Obviously, they do have to address the economics of uh, the economic situation in the country. It, it is at the top of all voters' minds. Um, but, but you know, sort of what are they going to do about any of the rest of this? Um, you know, they're, they're interested in doing some oversight over the FBI, but it's not clear that they're interested at all in doing something more comprehensive about an out-of-control and weaponized administrative state. You know, what are we going to get out of this? Is I guess what I'm, this is, this is always where I get super, super pessimistic. What are we going to get out of this, even if they have a huge night? Yeah, I, I mean, there's 
anything substantive i don't know i mean they'll introduce legislation like if you have a senator jd vance and a senator blake masters um they'll introduce legislation surely that is um you know sort, sort of along the lines of like good stuff that we've seen seen coming out of marco rubio's office over the last couple of years um you know s serious thoughtful uh bills that are designed uh to to nudge the conversation in a particular well, please direction tax the universities I yeah want, really i want them to propose that Somebody right. at least should put that idea on the table. J.D. Vance, I, I, I think J.D. Vance would have no problem doing that and no problem telling his staff to like actually direct their resources into coming up with a bill like that. We, we saw Josh Hawley with a great bill when he first hit the Senate on infinite scroll, uh, which is one of those things, again, that talks about how some of these technologies that are, we now conduct the vast majority of our lives on um, are designed to make us unhealthy and to uh, keep us addicted to screens. So I think they'll introduce legislation like that. Um, whether it, anything can actually happen um, is a totally different question. I, and I'm not optimistic about that at all. That's why I think the routes are, are you know, that's not to say that our politics don't need to change, um, that Republicans don't need to be more willing to, to think of uh, government solutions to some of these problems. And uh, I say that, you know, coming from your sort of position and as as well as a the small L liberal, um, I don't know, you know, that you even need to shatter precedent about what's an appropriate use of government power to think about whether chemicals in our foods should be in our foods. And if the sort of revolving door crony capitalist lobbyists that are controlling the FDA or controlling Coca-Cola are, are being appropriate, are, are using their power, wielding their power appropriately, I don't know that you need to shatter precedence of conservative dogma to, to do something like that. You just need to reprioritize. Um, but all that is to say... I, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, sure, we should think about those things, but I, I think the solution is overwhelmingly uh, cultural. Um, so because our politics are, are you know, so Madisonian in a good sense, um, but also in the sense that we're, we're totally jammed up by special interests and by the coming apart class, um, the people that are, are just still stuck in 1999 because their lives are as, just as good as they were in 1999. Um, and they've, they've noticed, if not better, by the way, uh, they've, they've noticed so little change to to their daily lives. Um, and all they care about is, you know, virtue signaling against Donald Trump. So I have very little optimism about um, anything happening differently in our politics. I do think House Republicans are poised to do a lot of oversight. That'll be positive um, because I had a piece last week that came out about Kevin McCarthy. I interviewed him um, a few weeks back and sort of pushed on that question of what are you actually going to do with, with oversight? What are you actually going to do with legislation? Um, but I think they're really going to, to tackle what happened during COVID. I think they're really going to tackle what the heck is going on with the Biden family, whether a president is, is comfortable compromised um, and the downstream effect of that can have sort of be chilling if they do it right uh, for the bipartisan lobbying class in Washington, D.C., if they do it right, which is another question entirely. Um, but getting to the bottom of COVID, getting to the bottom of what happened in our education system during COVID, um, I, I think they'll they'll press some of those you know, hot buttons, so to speak. Um, and that will, in a way that they wouldn't have before. Um, and I think they're going to give Democrats a little bit of a taste of their own medicine in terms of who's allowed on committees. And that may all, may all sound like a uh, beltway chatter, but uh, it is something that can make our politics work a little bit better if Democrats realize that uh, some of their precedent uh, and, and norm breaking uh, wasn't entirely healthy. So we'll see. Uh, but this is going very, very slowly, again, in a Madisonian sense, uh, but but going very, very slowly in general um, and in ways that uh, might not ultimately be timely enough to tackle some of those questions. Yeah, I really like the way that you phrased part of that when you when you um, opened your answer that time, that, that there there are there is a class of our leadership whose lives haven't either at, at worst ha have haven't changed right since 1999. Um, you know, and, and a lot of them, their lives have improved. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I think that is actually a really deaf way of describing the divide that's growing here is that there is a majority, uh, probably a large majority of Americans who, whose lives are, are noticeably worse in both the political sense and in the private sense. Their lives are notab notably worse than they were in 1999. And this is not just an economic question, although there's an economic component to it. Um, 
that the middle class life is becoming more and more unaffordable. Um, mm. the, the American middle class way of life that that has sort of been the the, the especially the, the crystallized American dream since the 1950s. That's becoming more and more unaffordable economically and structurally so. Right. Um, mm. That that's obviously a large part of it, but it, it's also all the stuff that we talk about and have just talked about. Right about. Um, having no sense of, of sort of American cultural identity anymore, no sense of, of being a good force in the world um, and, and no sense of, of like agreement, even on fundamental moral questions. You have the collapse of, of uh, churches, of other um, civic institutions since the nineties. Um, and the, those, those declines didn't start in the nineties, obviously, but um, the, the rise of, of people who are, um, unchurched or unbelievers like myself. <laughs> um, I, I, I think all of these factors, and then of course, actually what we just talked about, right? Like skyrocketing obesity rates since 1999, right? Skyrocketing uh, mental, mental health, health problems, mm-hmm. um, the, the rise of social media, none of this um, has actually worked out poorly. I, I would argue that some of this is still hurting people in, in sort of the upper class, but they have the resources to control the exactly. effect. Right. Um, in, in a way that it, it hasn't trickled down to the rest of society. They can go uh, to so Equinox I, and get their escape, um, you know, 90 minutes every day. And they can, you know, escape from the sort of processed food by going to their little organic grocery store and their organic cafe down the street. So they, they have better escapes for sure. Yeah, I think that's just I think that's a, a really um a really good way of putting the divide is has has your life gotten better or worse since 1999 and i would imagine i would love to see polling on that right mm. um have have the lives of you and your family gotten better since 99 or worse since 1999 and then segment it out by not only income but profession uh and i imagine you'd see you know charles murray like gulf um, opening up between the elite and and the rest of America on this, uh, but I do want to push back on one thing you said earlier, uh, which is that a lot of this is is cultural. Sort of a lot of the healing to all of this has to happen from outside of the political process, and that's obviously true on some level, right? Um, we are still individuals making choices. We still have free will, right? In the same way, actually, I think obesity is a really good example of this, right? Um, we just talked about all of the structural reasoning why we might be fatter than we were in 1999 um, as a country, but there's still a strong element of individual will, right? Involved mm-hmm. in this. People are still choosing to put certain things in their mouths, right? <laughs> At the end of the day. Um, but I, I think we, we tend to downplay and here, I mean, we, the right broadly, we tend to downplay, I think how much of this is a policy choice, Right. Um, yeah, and and even within the context we were just talking about, obviously, there is the farm bill, right? There are heavy subsidies for corn syrup as opposed to granulated sugar in the United States. Um, there are enormous incentives to put a ton of preservatives uh, into food because then um, it can be shipped in long distances and it's more economically efficient for the companies that make it. Right. So these are policy choices. And in the same way, there are some really important policy choices that are shaping our culture. The biggest one to me being heavily, heavily subsidizing and continuously subsidizing universities mm-hmm. um, and subsidizing credentialism for uh, th- there was actually it was an interesting story. Um, I think it was I can't remember what school it was. It was either like MIT. Actually, it was a surprising one. Um, maybe it was you. I, I think it was UPenn. Uh, they are offering now an actual major in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, which is, to my mind, is actually just honesty, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Short circuit it. Just, just be clear about the fact that we are credentialing, ideologically credentialing the children of the elite, because that's what a university degree is increasingly uh, means. But that's a policy choice, right? Yeah. We are choosing to let universities um, accept from the taxpayer largesse these heavily, heavily subsidized student loans. Uh, we are bailing out the student loans on the back end, which, by the way, there was a stay of Biden's decision to do that, um, I believe, in the Eighth Circuit. So we'll mm-hmm. see where that goes legally. Um, but mm-hmm. but regardless, there's enormous pressure building to to go ahead and bail out these loans on the back end where universities get to run away with their money. Right. That's a policy choice. It's a policy choice to let them sit tax free on trillions of dollars of real estate and hundreds of billions of dollars in endowments. That's a policy choice. Yeah. Uh, so, like, yes, there is this larger sort of Nietzschean 
shift of the West and the death of God and moving into a a post-Christian society, which, you know, you and I love to talk about and I think is is very important and very interesting. But there are some very concrete policy choices that we have made in this country that have well beyond what even the natural shift of, of these things would do, privileged a particular class and elite and particular ideologies. Um, and so I, I know that you, you, you agree with that in a larger sense, but I, I just, I kind of bristle at talking about it as though it is this sort of inevitable movement of, of tectonic plates or, or like glaciers or something. Um, when in reality, there are some very concrete things that we are doing to, to maybe not make this happen in the deeper sense, but to bolster it, to encourage it, um, to make it, uh, that shift happen faster and more powerfully and to make it much more difficult to do anything about. Well, it's interesting because there's this, uh, a lot of what you said actually is covered or can be covered by the administrative state's system of incentives and disincentives, you know, or, the, or a house oversight uh, uh campaigns, incentives and disincentives to the business community, for instance, if they start uh, investigating DEI as uh, corporate racism, basically, which you can make a very good case for, and they start doing that from their platform of the House of Representatives and calling executives from ExxonMobil up to talk about uh, institutionalized racism, um, you you basically get rid of the incentives for people to push that um, at your big banks, at your big corporations, and then even on the, the smaller level. So I actually think there's a good chance that you see some some motion on that front like the set of incentives um but then there's this question of if republicans controlled congress because democrats as we talked about earlier cannot really move on any of these issues because of the set of incentives in their own party that if you're on the wrong side of it it's not just that you're on the wrong side of it it's that you're a bigot um and that's a huge problem for them and there are some who are brave enough and willing to to break it but they're tulsi gabbard right like that they're not the ones that are still in Congress for the she had to leave right exactly for the most part so it pretty much has to come from the Republican Party and that means you have to have basically a Republican Senate Republican House or at the very least a Republican presidency to push from the administrative level some of those incentives you know for instance to say universities if you want to play give Democrats a taste of their own medicine uh, to say that universities who violate Title IX on the basis of sex um, are going to lose federal funding right To, to sort of wield the purse strings back at Democrats in ways that they've done it in the reverse, uh, at the very least, you have to have a Republican president. Well, then what happens? Joe Biden comes in and takes the Trump administration, the Betsy DeVos Education Department policy on Title IX, and immediately changes it. Um, And I'm not referring to sexual assault. I'm referring to gender identity. Immediately flips it back, uh, despite the fact that that is an incredibly unpopular policy that the vast majority of Americans disagree with it. Um, He'll just come in and change it. So uh, that's why, I mean, um, you know, the the political process process is frustratingly slow and in some ways that's good and in some ways it's bad um but that's sort of where i mean that on a deeper a deeper level i agree with you completely there are plenty of things republicans can do these are absolutely policy choices republicans are now sort of divorced enough from the business community and uh one thing that became clear to me talking to kevin mccarthy and other conservatives in the house they're actually like pretty convinced that we're in a state of national emergency um, because of the way that the FBI is being wielded, for instance, and, and so nakedly out in front, you know, not in the, the old J. Edgar Hoover way where you're, you're sort of trying to be clandestine, but just sort of like bragging about the ways that you're abusing state power um, openly and in public and running on it uh, in certain cases. Um, so Republicans are so thoroughly convinced that we're in a kind of state of national emergency. I think their incentives are there to, to do some of these things, to create incentives to reverse those policy choices um, and to actually reverse those policy choices. I just don't think that's sustainable until it becomes toxic for Democrats to pursue some of the same policies. And for that to happen, it means they need to marginalize what is an increasingly large part of their base among millennials um, and probably older members of Gen Z who have been conditioned to believe some of these things really are bigotry um, and to believe some of these things really are dangerous and violent, et cetera. You know, really marginalize those voices and, and stigmatize those perspectives uh, so you can create a different incentive uh, structure on the left uh, that allows Democrats to kind of engage in in some of the same policy choices 
um, and get behind some of the same policy choices. So that, I guess that's sort of what I mean. Is like there's a lot Republicans can do. And as we both agree, there's just there's a brick wall ultimately on that, too. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is you don't just need a president, right? You, even in your particular example, it, it took uh, the DeVos department and more power to them. And I always want to give them credit for this because it took them the better part of two and a half years Yes, to, to put forward restrictions on Title IX or regulations on Title IX that are just merely in line with what the Supreme Court has already said about due process. Right. And... So, and, and look, again, more power to them because they went through the APA rulemaking process. And now the only reason that we didn't have these Title IX changes on day one from the Biden administration is because they went through that process. And now the Biden administration has to go through that process. And by the way, um, thanks in part to the wonderful work of IW on this, um, we have, I think we broke records in terms of how many comments were submitted, many of them negative on um, on this ti- this Title IX change that redefines sex. Uh, so I, I think that the Biden administration is going to be busy with those comments for quite some time. By the way, 160,000 of them disappeared off the, the website counter, um, and there is no real explanation for why that happened. Um, but... But yeah, you don't you don't just need a president, right? You need an ability to control the bureaucracy, um, so that because there's there's a thousand things just like these regulations that were painstakingly promulgated by uh, the DeVos Ed Department. There are a thousand different things that each of those departments actually needs to do for us to even have like a fighting shot at leveling the playing field in terms of of policy incentives. Um, and so you can't you can't operate in an executive branch that way, which is why I think the solutions really do have to be uh, much more structural. We need to find a way to control the bureaucracy mm-hmm. in a much more direct way. I've always obviously submitted my policy ideas for that, which is just make them fireable. There might be other ways to do it, but um, you know, this is something that needs to be very high priority for any serious Republican party. But I can't let you go, Emily, um, without discussing something that um, I think is actually very tied to a lot of the deeper stuff that we're talking about um, with regard to the midterms, these, these kind of political, these issues that haven't made it up into our politics, even though they really are affecting uh, people in the most basic and real level. Um, and, and that is the, this poll that was released um, showing, and I'm, I'm reading off of it here, um, this is the American Perspective Survey and then Gallup in 1990. Um, so these are, these are polls going back to 1990, and they're showing the change in people, a percentage of people who report that they have the following number of close friends, not counting their relatives. And there's a huge increase in the number of people who say they have no close friends at all, and a huge decrease in the number of people who say that they have five or more close friends. Um, I'm just kind of lumping all of those together. They put five, five to nine, 10 plus. Um, but you're, you're seeing basically a massive increase in the number of people who say they have no friends at all, no close friends at all. Um, I, I see this very much as of a piece of the thing that we talked about last time, which is, you know, the, the huge change in um, male virginity uh, at age 30, right? So people are not having sex, um, and they are not making friends either. Um, I think this is probably one of the most important trends in our society. Maybe it's longer term. I mean, Amer- I, I've said on here that I think Americans are kind of weird about friendship. That's definitely been reinforced every time I tweet about this. There's some guy or several guys in my mentions saying, like, only, like, a man doesn't need friends. He just needs a dog, a gun, and, and his wife taking care of his wife and kids. Um, and those are always folks from the right. Um, and so, you know, we are a little bit weird about friendship that way. But um, this survey shows that, in fact, even 1990, speaking of things that were better for most people in, in the 1990s versus today, there was a vast majority of Americans said that they had um, plenty of good friends. In fact, Forty percent of men in 1990 said they had more than ten good friends. Mm. What, what, um, that's like unthinkable now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now it's fifteen percent, so less than half. But but that that is just so like almost a majority. And in fact, if you look at, um, let me pull this back up. You you have fifteen. I'm doing quick math in my head. Like just about seventy percent um, of men in 1990 had five or more close friends. Mm. That's obviously not the case today. 
And we started the episode talking about sort of the flaws of polling. Um, and that's why it's always important to look at things that are polled uh, on the same metric over time. Like that's always just a very, very helpful way to gauge things as this poll does. And, and also, by the way, political polling is different because it's trying to actually ascertain who's going to vote and then measure their opinions. Um, so it's sort of a different question. And this poll, I think, is powerful uh, because it is you know tracking the, the same sort of uh, mile marker at one point versus another point. And that all happened over the course of a time period in which um, very, very wealthy people told us that they were creating products um, that were going to bring us all closer together, that were going to uh, that, that were going to basically shorten the or make make distance immaterial, right? Like you could have a, a best friend over in uh, China or in Argentina or whatever it is, and, and sure, maybe that is technically, literally the case. You can you can maybe figure that out, um, but how is it? How is it? I mean, if you told somebody uh, in the 1990s that this is where it was going to go uh, by 2022, they would say, what are you smoking? That's impossible. We are making the globe smaller. We are bringing people closer together in ways that you can't even imagine. You're going to be able to call up your grandmother and see her face uh, with the click of a button. You're going to be able to talk to a robot and tell it to call up your grandmother um, and see her face to face uh, without moving a muscle. Um, they would say that was absolutely insane. But now we know. Uh, you know does, does anybody, I would be curious if you showed anybody these results and asked them, does this sound wrong to you? I think everybody would say it sounds right to them. Um, exactly correct. And so it's just, we have been told one thing, the opposite has been happening and people have been profiting off of it. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's something that is very sad about the fact that you never hear this in our politics um, at all. Uh, what, are, what are they doing? I mean, the left would have a very kind of materialist per perspective on this and say, you know, it's because we're, we're not seeing a lot of wage growth. It's because more and more income and resources is concentrated at the top. Um, but, you know, I bet actually this is this goes uh, there, there are similar levels across income and class on on questions like these. And we've just reorganized our society in a way that is so anti-human um, and nobody seems to have any plan uh, whatsoever. I mean, I agree that economic, better economic conditions um, would create generally better conditions for community um, and better conditions for, for friendship and relationships. I, I do, I, I agree with that in, in some sense, and that's kind of a, an important debate to have. But I also think uh, clearly something is going very, very wrong with our technology. Technologies, um, and nobody seems to want to talk about it. Well, I mean, it, it's yes, it's 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 a particular irony that the technologies that were designed to connect the world seem to be atomizing us even further. Um, but but it's also a huge failure of the promises I think of of sort of social leftism or um, or even mm -hmm. liberalism, which has always promised that like if if we essentially if we dissolve all of the, the these structures, right? If if we get away from the oppressive structures of family, of churches, we can be our more true and authentic selves, right? This is very much even in Gen X, right? Like a theme, um, you know, I'm not part of an organization, I'm an individual, and and the the theme was always you can be your truest self, right? This way, if we strip away all of these oppressive influences on you, and what it turns out what turns out to be the case is, is um, all of these supposedly oppressive structures actually provided a platform or, or a kind of connective tissue that made people become friends with each other, meet, have sex, get married, right? And that without those things, um, we don't know who our authentic selves are. Not only do we not know the answer to that question, we, we don't even know how to connect with another person in a way that would share anything authentic about ourselves, and which is, I think, a, a pretty good working definition for friendship. And it's, it's, um, it, it is ironic, right, that we were told that getting away from all of this is what would make us our truest selves, when in reality... You know, Aristotle would have said, right, human, the human is a political animal, a social animal. Um, we exist in communities and actually these structures give us give us what we need to form those kind of individual connections with other people in a way that's not possible when we're all just sort of 
actualized selves, like atomistically bouncing off each other um, with no kind of platforms or structures, or, or I think the, the internet term going around was third things, right? Um, mm. that, that this is actually a very lonely way to live. Well, and to Democrats who are purport to be horrified about January 6th and Trumpism every single day, if people are miserable and lonely, how do you think they're going to vote? And to Republicans who purport to be horrified by wokeness every single day, if people are miserable, unhealthy, and lonely, how do you think they're going to vote both politically and culturally? How do you think they're going to live their lives? Where do you think they're going to look for meaning? Um, and so, yes, there are absolutely like material and policy choices that are uh, creating, enabling, and and fueling national sort of misery, uh, which, which again is like odd in this dichotomy of like material, like TVs have gotten much cheaper over the past 30 years, so we can now have massive TVs and we can have a lot of them. Um, and no and one to watch them with. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, or you can put your Oculus on and, and watch Netflix uh, with someone on the other side of the world, which is not the same experience if you try to substitute it. But all that is to say, um, there are serious implications of this, this sort of malaise. Um, and Democrats should be terrified of them. Republicans should be terrified of them. It, it does create um, more sort of bad religion, uh, and it, it creates that on the left and on the right. And so if they really want to do something about it, they should go talk to their friends at uh, these these crony institutions um, that are that are so eager to, to get them to rubber stamp this bill and that bill and not do anything about higher ed because uh, people give a lot of money to the Democrat, the Democratic Party from, uh, you know, big education. And, you know, you're going to have to start thinking about those things and, and making hard choices if you actually want to do something about it. About it. Um, but whether they actually want to do something about it is a very different question. Yeah, I can't think of a, a better note to end this on, even though it's depressing. Um, Emily, thank you so much for once again coming on High Noon After Dark. We do this every month uh, as a reminder. Uh, so thanks again for coming back on. Thank you, Inez. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Seppin is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. By the way, we have other productions of the Independent Women's Forum, including At the Bar, which is a, a discussion of issues at the center of law, politics, and culture. In fact, we're going to do a Supreme Court review and preview uh, coming up in the next couple weeks here. And that's with me and my colleague, Jennifer Braceris. Um, we also have another podcast, She Thinks, which is more of a download on a wide variety of political and policy topics with all kinds of great guests. So you should check that out. Um, as always, you can send comments and questions to me at Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.